0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: I'm Afua Hirsch.
0: I'm Peter Frankopan.
1: And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history.
2: This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra.
1: An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries.
2: But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today.
1: I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon.
2: everyone. Welcome to Downstairs History. It gives me enormous happiness to talk to a man that was a legend when I was young, an absolute legend. Eddie the Eagle, Michael Edwards, earned the nickname Eddie the Eagle in the international press. I mean, this guy was world famous as a ski jumper in the 1988 Olympics. He was the first person to represent Great Britain in the Olympic ski jumping since 1928. And he wowed the world. Finishing last in the 70 meters and last in the 90 meters. But he did break the British ski jumping record. The man's a legend. He became a kind of worldwide phenomenon at the time. People a certain age will remember him very well, like me. And then he's had a renaissance recently because they made a film about him in 2016, Eddie the Eagle. And he's done all sorts of UK based reality shows, all of which he's performed very well in. He is one of the most zen, nicest most relaxed and wise celebrities I have ever met or interviewed. He is as happy in the public eye as he is plastering, which he does to make a living when money from other engagements runs out. He has a wonderful attitude to life. And so it was a huge honour to catch up with him and ask him about those events back in February 1988, when almost overnight he became one of the world's most recognized figures. A completely extraordinary story. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did when I had it. If you want to go back and watch some history shows, I here you can do so at HistoryHit.tv. Once you're at HistoryHit.tv, you can watch hundreds of hours of documentaries, listen to all these back episodes of the podcast without ads. It's a one-stop shop for history lovers. You've got to go and check it out. And if you really want to ramp up the history interaction, come to our live tour, HistoryHit.com slash tour. We'll be talking to some of the world's best historians And we will be learning about the history of the cities in which we find ourselves that particular night. It's going to be awesome. Historyhit.com slash tour. In the meantime, everybody, here is Eddie the Eagle. Ed, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. That's okay. It's nice to be here. Thank you very much. You captured the imagination of the entire world. Does it feel like a dream, that whole period of your life? Yeah, it
3: still, to this day, feels very strange, because it was not something I set out to do. All I wanted to do was go to the Olympic Games, compete in the ski jumping, get a little bit of attention from the media from the UK, and then I was hoping to turn that attention into sponsorship, and then go for the 92, 94, 98 and 2002 Olympics and carry on. I didn't know that I was going to get christened and Daddy the Eagle, and then capture everybody's imagination, and it exploded, and to this day, I'm called Eddie the Eagle, and it's
2: very nice, but it was totally unexpected, but lovely. Did you always have a passion for winter sports? You're not brought up in the mountains. How did it all begin for you? Well, I'm from the Cotswolds, so
3: we're a bit hilly. We do get a bit of snow occasionally, but I was very lucky that I have a local dry ski slope, which is one of the biggest in the country, Gloucester Ski Centre. I used to love watching Ski Sunday when I was a kid, And then I went on a school ski trip and then Gloucester Ski Centre became my home and I loved it. I did all sports when I was a kid, but it wasn't until I started skiing and I thought, wow, this is such a fantastic sport. And I'm just as excited to go skiing now as when I started, you know, over 40 years ago. And are you a big skier still? Oh, yes, I still love my skiing. I've not gone away this winter, obviously, because of COVID. But I do try and go away at least once a year. But sometimes I could be away 10 or 11 weeks of the year skiing. So, yeah, I still love it. And I want to be skiing on my 100th birthday.
2: And I bet you're a really good skier.
3: <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. If anybody asks me, I'd just say, no, I'm an average skier. But I still love it. And I can still do a lot of things. And I can still do the same things that I used to do
2: when I was 20 years old. So I still enjoy it. And why did you go for jumping? Presumably, you just wanted to compete, did you? And was jumping the one that took your fancy? Or did you think that was where the opportunity was? Well, originally, I was into racing, alpine ski racing. I was doing slalom,
3: giant slalom, super G, downhill. I was in America racing internationally, and I ran out of money. And I couldn't afford to carry on racing. It was way too expensive. But I saw ski jumping, and it was still skiing, but it was a lot cheaper for me to do. So it was an economic decision, really. And I started ski jumping on the very, very small jumps and went my way up to the big ones. And then I discovered that nobody would really been a ski jumper from Great Britain. And I carried on and they set a qualification for Calgary and I managed to reach it. And they let me go and then it all went haywire. But uh, that's how it all happened.
2: This is all a long time before government funded or lottery funded sports bursaries or whatever they're called. I mean, how did you support yourself when you were back in the early days of jumping?
3: Very, very difficult. Although I was a skier and skiing is very much a minority sport in Great Britain. And trying to get sponsorship is very, very difficult. And I just did the best I could. I I was a plasterer with my dad. So my dad gave me some money. I would work with him for a few weeks, make as much money as I could. And then my mum would let me borrow her car. I would drive into Europe And then I would make that money last as long as possible. And I slept in the car. I slept in cow sheds. I slept in barns. I slept in mental hospitals. I slept in a tent. I did all kinds of things just to make my money go as far as I possibly could. And then I got little jobs here and there as well, working in hotels, washing up, scrubbing floors, shoveling snow, waiting tables to get a bit of money or a bit of food. And I did it that way and carried on my skiing and then obviously my ski jumping.
2: Did you love it? Was it all worth it? Loved it. It was such a great way
3: to do it. And I don't regret it at all because it made me into the person I am today. And I'm really appreciative of the things I receive and the kindness I get from people. And it was such a great way to do it. And I loved it. I loved every second of it.
2: When did the Olympics become feasible? Because this was a time when Britain just didn't send anyone to the Winter Olympics. Because I'm half Canadian, so we used to watch in our family. My schoolmates all thought we were weird. Like We didn't even mark it.
3: That's right. Well, even now, Great Britain only send about 50 athletes to the Winter Olympics because we're not really a winter nation. We do have a bit of a history years ago of figure skaters, Robin Cousins, Torvalin Dean and people before then. And we have a couple of good bobsledders occasionally with the army. Now we've done very well with the skeleton and luge and things. And of course, in Scotland, we do curling. But generally speaking, we're not a winter nation. So that was part of the appeal, really. I loved my skiing. I loved all sports, but especially skiing. And I thought, let me go with that. And it's such a great sport. And I still love to watch skiing to this day on TV. How does it work for the Winter Olympics? You have to hit a qualifying distance or time, do you, in a qualifying event? Yeah, with ski jumping, I had to reach a certain distance in a World Cup competition. And I did that in December of 1987. And then I was written a letter in the January of 1988. But at the time, when I received the letter, I was in a mental hospital in Finland. I was up there ski jumping, training, and I had nowhere to stay. And they let me stay in this mental hospital because they were renovating one of the wings of the hospital. I rang my mum and she said, I've got this letter for you. And she opened it and she said, my God, you've been picked. You're going to the Olympic Games. And that was it. I came out of that mental hospital, flew home to London, picked up my uniform went to Steamboat Springs in Colorado to train with the US team and then straight to Calgary to compete. So it was amazing, amazing time.
2: It became a fun thing for you to laugh about, but you were a good ski jumper, right? You're in the top 100 in the world. You deserve to be there. I was very much a beginner when I went to Calgary because I'd only been jumping for 20
3: months. Everybody else there at the Olympics had been jumping for 20 years. So there was no way that I was going to beat anybody. But for me, getting there was the greatest thing, was my gold medal, really. But I was still very much a beginner. But I was hoping by getting some attention and getting some sponsorship over the next 10, 20 years, I could have been a really, really good ski jumper. Unfortunately, I got so much attention at Calgary, to the extent where I got more attention than the guy who won the event, they didn't like the fact that a guy who came 58th was getting more attention. They brought out these new rules and effectively kicked me out of the sport. So I wasn't able to reach quite the potential that I wanted to, but it was still great
2: fun doing it. Well, we'll come to that. That's a terrifying end of the story. But just tell me about the game because I spent a lot of time in Calgary when I was young. The ski jump dominates the city as you drive west towards the Rocky Mountains. I know it so well. What was it like going to the Olympics? What was that experience like? Oh, it was magic. It
3: was like a circus. It was fantastic. And the Calgarians were so proud of hosting an Olympic Games. It was a fantastic experience. From the moment you land at Calgary Airport, going to the Olympic Games, to the moment you leave, it was just fantastic. We had great facilities at the university where it became the Athletes' Village, We had everything that we needed to do our training. Of course, I was going to the ski jumps every day to try and ski jump, but it was often very windy. Parties every night. The whole uh, centre of Calgary was just one big party every night with Olympic ceremonies and medal ceremonies and all that kind of thing. And it was just tremendous. And I loved every second of being there.
2: If you listen to Dan Snow's History Hit, I'm talking to Eddie the Eagle. More after this.
3: Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and followed Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile
2: Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, bet you get twenty, twenty. to get 15,
1: 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? Sold! Give it a try at mintmobile.com
0: slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all.
2: I've had some big nights out in Calgary. It's a fun town. When did things get weird? When did things start? I mean, one minute you're just a competing athlete, the next minute you're a global superstar. What happened?
3: I think it was the press conference at Calgary. They did it in the Saddle Dome in downtown Calgary. And I couldn't get into my press conference because the security guard wouldn't let me in. And then when I eventually managed to get into this press conference, I had 700 people from the media from all over the world and I said, I'm sorry I'm late, but the security guard wouldn't let me in because he said I didn't look like an athlete. And of course, they roared with laughter. And then I told them all about my life as a ski jumper and the experiences that I had and the places in which I found myself, like the mental hospital and things. And it just exploded. And of course, when I arrived in Calgary, I was walking through the airport and there was a great big banner on the wall saying, welcome to Calgary, Eddie the Eagle. And I said, wow, I said, who's that? And they said, it's you. And that was it. I got christened and Debbie Beagle and it just exploded. And I've been known that ever since.
2: But why? Why did they pick you out? Was it just because they heard that you were a novice jumper who managed to qualify? Yes, I think it was because I did an interview with the BBC
3: nine o'clock news two weeks before Calgary. And I said, I'm Eddie Edwards and I'm going to be Britain's first ever Olympic ski jumper. And I said and to all you people out there who I asked for sponsorship and you didn't give it to me. I said, huh, I got there without your help. And they got such a response from that interview in the UK. And then they sent it to Calgary, and they showed it on Canadian television. And they thought, Oh, my God, this guy from Great Britain, he's got no snow, no ski jumps, no money, no training, no equipment. And yet he's doing this really dangerous sport of ski jumping. And they just loved it. And they really took on board what I was trying to achieve and what I was doing. And they loved every second of it, just like
2: I did doing it. Be honest, all that tension, was it good fun? Or did it actually distract you? Was it harmful, do you think, looking back? Sometimes it was a little bit distracting, but I was still able to
3: go off and do some training. There was a little ski jump in Norquay near Banff and I was nipping out there. When it was too windy to jump in Calgary, I was nipping in a car and going to Norquay and doing some jumping there.
2: I know Norquay very well. I used to work in Canmore every summer when I was a student.
3: Oh ah, yes, that's right. Yeah, we used to pass Canmore and all the cross-country stuff. Yeah, I was getting a little bit of training in there. But on the bigger picture, it was fantastic. You know, I didn't know that I was going to get the attention that I got. And I just rolled with it. I just went with the flow and enjoyed it while it lasted. It was a good opportunity.
2: Did the other jumpers just hate you? Their egos must have been bruised. No,
3: no. In fact, 90% of the jumpers loved it. They were saying, this is fantastic. All this attention that was being thrust upon me was also being thrust upon the sport of ski jumping. And they said, this is wonderful. More people wanted to watch it, more people wanted to do it, more companies wanted to put money into it. It was just one or two of the best jumpers who didn't like it. They said, I'm the best jumper in the world. I should be the most popular. But most of the others loved it. They said it was great.
2: And who's heard of Matty Nickanen now, eh?
3: He died last year, unfortunately, poor guy. But he was actually quite nice because he didn't like the media. And so he was really appreciative of the fact that I was taking all the media attention away from him because he didn't really like talking to the media. So he loved it.
2: Oh, sorry. A, A huge, wow, apologies to Matty and his family there. God, poor thing.
3: Yeah, it was a shame. It was quite a
2: shock because he's my
3: age. Uh, And he died, uh, yeah, 18 months ago, Uh, but he's had a a tough life with drink and drugs and all that kind of thing. But uh, bless him, he was a great jumper in his time.
2: Winning gold medals can ruin your life. It's not what it's cracked up to be. He dominated the sport for 20
3: odd years and won everything you could win. Nobody dominated the sport like Matty did back in the 1980s.
2: When it came to the jump, I remember I was 10 years old. I was at home in the UK. I was watching with my mum and tell us what happened. Oh, it was
3: great. It was a clear blue sky, beautiful sunny day. There was no wind and there was 91,000 people in the stadium watching. And about three or four competitors before I was due to go down, I could hear the crowd start to shout, "Eh, eh, they wanted me to jump. And, you know, I walked out there, put my skis on. I looked down to the US coach because he said he would flag me down. I looked for his flag, and he waved, and off I went. The roar from the crowd, even though I was jumping through the air, I could hear the roar. And I managed to jump 71 metres, which was a new British record. I jumped further in competition at Calgary than I ever did before, and I managed to land on my feet. And I was very happy to land, and they celebrated the whole achievement. It was great.
2: You didn't manage to win a medal, though?
3: Oh, no, no, no. You know, 58th. I came 58, but that didn't matter. For me, getting there was the greatest thing.
2: And you ended up on every single television show around the world. For three years afterwards, my
3: feet didn't touch the ground. I was opening shopping centres, golf courses, phone rides, doing TV, radio shows, having a whale of a time.
2: The one thing you weren't doing was ski jumping, unfortunately.
3: Well, unfortunately, people in officialdom didn't like the fact that I got all that attention. They brought out these new rules. In America, they call it the Eddie the Eagle rule, which effectively kicked me out of the sport and athletes had to reach a certain standard to go to the Olympics, which I thought goes way against all the Olympic ideals, which was a shame, really. So it's very short sighted of them. But um, what can you do?
2: Was it annoying because the film version that was made? I mean,
3: they made a film about you, Eddie. I mean, what was that? Yes. Well, Calgary, they made two movies. They made cool runnings about the Jamaican bobsled team and then my film, Eddie the Eagle. So it was a great Olympics for the underdogs, definitely. Yeah, to have a movie made about my life was amazing. I signed the deal to make that movie 21 years ago. And then it was because I did Splash about six years ago. That was the impetus to make the film. And they did such a great job making the film. I love it.
2: But I think you came across as a bit hapless. And actually, you weren't hapless. You were a good athlete. You weren't scared of heights and you know all that kind of stuff. Well, not really. I'm a little
3: bit more confident with heights than most people. But I was still scared when I ski jumped. You have to be scared. Because when you're nervous, you focus. You concentrate more. Because I knew that if I made a mistake, I would get hurt. So you have to be nervous. You have to be scared to do the sport. But the film really showed that through tenacity, through resilience, and through never giving up, you can achieve great things. And it really captured the heart and spirit and essence of my story. And they did it in such a nice way. I've seen the film so many times now. And I think they did a wonderful job in capturing my life story
2: as a ski jumper. Is it weird when you become one of the most famous people in the world, when that tide slowly ebbs out? Did you think it would go on forever? Or did you realise it's just a weird thing that would last for a few years, and you might as well enjoy it? Well, to be honest, I never really looked that far
3: ahead. It was great what happened at Calgary. And I rode the way, went with the flow for a few years afterwards, three or four years, you know, made as much money as I could and put it in the bank and things. But I was quite prepared. For me, the fame side was just a job. And I knew that that job eventually would just get less and less. I would earn less from it, but I had other things to fall back on. My building, my construction, my plastering, that kind of thing. And then when the film came out, I gave up my building and my plastering. And and I've been traveling all over the world for the last four or five years, doing talks at conferences and dinners and things like that. And in my spare time, I do a bit of plastering. You know, I enjoy doing it. But if it all ended tomorrow, I would be perfectly happy because I just love doing my plastering and my construction as much as I do my Eddie the Eagle work and my skiing and my ski jumping. So I just love doing everything.
2: And you make enough money to get a few little ski trips in every year? Absolutely, yeah. I work
3: with a couple of travel companies, so I try and get out between three and seven times a year skiing. I speak on cruises, so I go on four or five cruises a year. I thought, what a great life, you know. And I do a bit of plastering, which keeps me fit. do a bit of speaking. It's great. I think I've got the perfect lifestyle now. I can do what I want, when I want,
2: how I want, and it's perfect. When you're plastering, Do people know that it's Eddie the Eagle?
3: Nowadays, I only do plastering for friends and family. So if I've got friends who need some work doing, then I'll help them out. Whereas I did have a bit of a problem years ago because people would ring me up and ask me to come around and give them a quote just so that they could say, oh, Eddie the Eagle came to my house when they didn't really want me to do any work. And it was just wasting my time So nowadays, I just do a bit of work for friends and family. Plastering keeps me fit. It keeps me grounded. A friend of mine is a builder, and I was doing some plastering yesterday, and I'll be doing some plastering tomorrow as well. But I still enjoy it. So I thought, why not? And also, because of my speaking, because of COVID, all my speaking work just died a death for the foreseeable future. And it's just a nice little bit of pocket money coming in, and I'm happy.
2: What of the lessons you got from the rest of us as someone who's been both a global celebrity and a man who earns his living with his hands? You know, what's Eddie the Eagle wisdom that we need to take away? Oh, gosh, that would be hard. I think
3: just be happy with your lot. If you enjoy doing what you're doing, you're in a perfect situation. It doesn't really matter how much you're earning. I think it's far more important to do something you love doing than to do a job that you hate, but you get paid well for. And as for sport... Go for it, and even if people turn around and say, it can't be done, you can't do it. For me, that was like a red rag to a ball, and I would try and prove them wrong. And I like nothing better than proving people wrong, and I say, if you think you can do it, you go for it, and ignore what everybody else says. So just do anything you like to do and go for it, really. You got any surprises left for us? Any in the years to come? <laughs> well, I don't know yet. I surprise myself all the time. When I did Splash six years ago, I thought it'd be great if I could just reach the final and then I ended up winning the show. So I've got a few surprises in store, but uh, I won't reveal them just yet. But I'm just up for whatever comes along. If I get invited to do something like Strictly, I'll throw myself into that. Or Dancing on Ice, I'll throw myself into that. Have a lot of fun doing it and see what happens. But yeah,
2: I might surprise a few people. Thank you so much, Eddie. Thanks for coming on. So Eddie, what's the best way for people to follow you? Stay in touch with you? Well, no, I've got photographs on my website,
3: eddytheeagle.co.uk, and people can get in touch if they want me to come along and do a talk or things like that. I do a lot of after-dinner speaking and motivational talks and things like that. So, yeah, go onto my website and get in touch.
2: Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you.
3: I feel the hand the history on our shoulders.
2: All this tradition of ours, our school
3: history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished
0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA.
1: He says, Somebody's in the house, and I screamed. <laughs> Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds